Hello and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. Today's episode is featuring an excerpt from the 6th Annual Baptist TWI Summit in October of 2021. What you're going to hear is Dr. William Cloud and Dr. H.F. Mason um, interviewing Dr. Edgar Schein and his son Peter Schein on the second edition of their book, Humble Inquiry. While we're waiting for Dr. Schein to hopefully be able to get on and Peter to get on, uh, HF and Dr. Cloud, would, would you all kind of do a quick synopsis or a quick overview on what you've learned from this thing that we're calling Humble Inquiry so far this year? Sure, Skip, uh, and, and thanks for, for letting us be part of this summit. Um, first of all, I'd like to say is that, that Humble Inquiry uh, doesn't come naturally to me, doesn't come natural. Uh, it, and especially as a physician, uh, as a surgeon, you know, my, my conversations with people tend to be, as you said, more leading, more prescriptive when, when a patient comes into, uh, the exam room, yeah, if somebody gets referred to me with gallstones, I kind of know that I'm going to take their gallbladder out. So I ask those leading questions and uh, basically knowing what the answer is going to be. And, you know, humble inquiry, it, it's a skill that's hard, but is what it's taught me is to slow down and just let let the other person that I'm talking to let them talk because, you know, from a physician standpoint, we've always heard, uh, you know, if you would just allow the the patient to talk, they will uh, they will tell you what's wrong with them, and a lot of times we don't we don't uh, give the the patient that that uh, that chance to tell us. We we kind of want to be more prescriptive, so that that's really what. Um, what has re I've really learned and what's really helped me in my interactions, not only on a professional level, but, but my interactions on a personal level, but with family, with children, et cetera. How about you, Bill? Yeah, I'd have to say that uh, the interactions and the experience I've had, uh, both reading the book and, and with the, the times that uh, we've had the opportunity to meet with the Shines, uh, it's it's really resonated with me because um, at one part of my career, uh, I had sort of an aha moment that HF referred to uh, that if you will just let the patient talk, they will tell you what's wrong with them. And, uh, and, and that uh, has come up in terms of uh, resident education. Uh, uh, and, and that is something uh, that can be imparted and can be actually learned uh, as a skill. Um, and uh, it, it also has application uh, when you work in a larger organization. Uh, it's a little bit easier when you're not um, in surgeon mode trying to determine whether somebody is at risk for dying this minute, uh, which I think there's appropriate time and place for it. Uh, so it, it, it is difficult for surgeons to shift gears, uh, sometimes from, uh, life-threatening surgeon mode to humble inquiry mode. Uh, that's been a little bit difficult, uh, for me, not, not quite as bad as it used to be, but, <laughs> but it's still a challenge. Um, 
And I, I agree with HF that the tendency is that you want to be able to to tell uh, to tell what the situation is, or at least ask leading questions. And increasingly, I found it a lot more useful uh, to to take a different approach. Uh, it also allows you to uh, to establish relationships a little bit easier when you're not uh, constantly telling each other. It makes you listen, uh, which which I think is is a really important thing. So. I've gotten a lot of uh, reinforcement and uh, and resonance from having these conversations and, and reading about humble inquiry. Yeah, and I I just like to add is that you know from a from a leadership perspective, when we when we don't practice humble inquiry with with our direct reports or with other people, we we actually are are suppressing you know, the creativity in that person, because I, I tend to be the type of person, okay, this is what you need to do, do this, do this, do this, and get it done. Whereas humble, and when you're practicing humble inquiry, you, you, you tend to ask, well, you know, tell me, tell me what you would like to do. And, and um, you know, it really draws that person out and uh, it really causes, causes them to think and, and, it, and it lets us, uh, uh, you know, use that person's creativity. Yeah, the, the other thing I'd like to say on top of that, uh, HF, is is it, it has reinforced in me the idea that, you know, we come in with a lot of cognitive biases uh, into situations and we make assumptions about what it is we're dealing with. Uh, and I think it's it's helped me to realize that I don't know what I don't know yet. And so uh, it's really helpful in the discovery process about what are we really talking about here? And, and, and to use one of, the, of Dr. Shine's phrases, what the devil do we think we're doing here? Uh, welcome, uh, Peter Shine. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Skip, my pleasure. And at any rate, th that was a great conversation that, that while Ed and I were trying to, to uh, debug a little bit. I you you guys were covering a lot of good ground, Dr. Mason and Dr. Cloud. So um uh I, I couldn't imagine a much better sort of um uh lead in. I will want to go back to Dr. Cloud's um uh comment that actually was I think was an adaptation of a quote from Clifford Geertz, the famous social anthropologist. So we'll we'll get there because right? that's one of my favorite quotes. Um but Anyway, thanks for the opportunity to do this with with you all. We've Ed and I have really enjoyed the the last sort of six or eight months of work with you folks, and um, it's it couldn't be more gratifying to have some of this stuff resonating. Okay, so I'm equally anxious to participate and have enjoyed this process very much. We're so glad that you're here and and we're able to make it. Um, you know, Skip has talked a little bit about the definition of humble inquiry, and and Dr. Cloud and I touched on it some. But but who better, who better to hear uh, what humble inquiry actually is is from the is from the man who who coined the phrase. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people on on the who are here at the summit who are going to be very familiar with your work and and know exactly what humble inquiry is. But there's there's certainly a lot of people who don't. So if you guys wouldn't mind, just spend a few minutes 
telling us exactly what humble inquiry is. I, I will do that from a history standpoint, and then Peter will elaborate from a definitional standpoint, okay? Okay. History may help you understand it. <clears throat> In a book that I wrote, are, are you listening to me? Yep. Is it this okay? In a book that I yes. wrote uh, 20 years ago called Helping, I was explaining all the different ways that helpers ask questions in order to be helpful, like if you're a counselor or a therapist and so on. And it occurred to me that one of the best ways for the helper to ask a question is to have a truly blank mind of not knowing the answer. And I thought a term for that if I'm asking the client, you know, what's on your mind? Why are we here? Totally open-ended. I have no idea what the answer might be. I labeled that subsection, or actually it was a whole chapter, and I labeled that chapter Humble Inquiry because I was trying to find a way of asking a question to which I truly don't know the answer. And I thought that would be a good way to start being helpful. And it then subsequently happened that the publisher said, that is a dynamite title. You gotta write a book about that. <laughs> but all I had done in my own mind was to say, what what is it that I really need to know in order to be helpful? So what kind of questions can I ask that will enable the client, the other person, to enable and in a way force them to tell me what's on their mind? And then I realized several years later when I finally did write the book that asking that first question is only part of it. And that's where Peter will come in with, with his uh, <clears throat> mnemonic. The, the next part of humble inquiry is the attitude that I want to be helpful. And if I'm going to be helpful, I need not only to know more from you, but I need to reveal more of myself. You tell me, well, <clears throat> I'm really worried about uh, the the patient safety problem in my hospital. Now I have to choose what to do next that fits the model of something that I don't know the answer to. If I then switched and said, well, I can tell you what they do over in uh, Virginia Mason Hospital, now I've abandoned humble inquiry. Now I've gone into the tell mode. So if I want to stay helpful, I have to say, well, tell me a little more. What do you mean by patient safety? Or give me an example. And then the other person gives me an example. And then I again have to choose. Do I keep inquiring or do I take over the conversation 
and say, well, here's some ideas, or what have you done so far? I can switch to my agenda very easily. But true humble inquiry would be to keep asking questions until I really truly <clears throat> understand the problem and can get on board with where the client is. So they finally tell me, well, we've had these three consecutive accidents <clears throat> where the nurse misunderstood the doctor's orders. The handoff went badly. The patient got sicker or died. Now we are closer to my understanding where the help is needed. So now I could switch and say, well, now tell me a little more about this handoff thing. What, what do you mean by handoff? Well, when the doctor writes a message to the nurse, give him this and this, and she can't read it and gives the wrong, uh, wrong stuff. Now we're into problem solving. But I can always switch back to saying, we're not at a point where I don't understand. I need more examples. I don't know the answer to the question that we're dealing with. So the attitude <clears throat> is to keep inquiring, but to do that, I also have to reveal my confusion and say, I don't understand what a doctor nurse handoff is, or are you talking about the OR to the ICU? I have a zillion more concrete questions that still technically are under the humble inquiry umbrella. But I've now revealed that what I don't know, that I'm not familiar with ORs and ICUs or whatever. So are you beginning to understand what I'm getting at? But I, so I just go back to um, one of the, the key ideas was, was what, what's humble because um, we did not want to sort of set this bar at, you have to be a humble person. We're not, we're not asking that of everybody because that's, that may be easy for some people. Um, but for a lot of people, you know, if you're the, you know, you know, if you've been a star at everything you've ever done, you may not be the humblest person, but if you are able to embrace your ignorance, to accept the fact that in, in, in any given situation, you don't know what's going on. And you may be very confident that you can figure it out. That's where you're, you're, you, you may not um, feel particularly humble as a person, but if you're confident enough that you can accept that you don't know what's going on and that there are a lot of ways of drawing other people out that will give you a better sense of what's going on, then, then that's the that's the the importance of embracing that humility. In other words, um, as doctors, your your lives are driven around the content of what you do. Um, a lot of the point of humble inquiry is to get at the context of what of of what that content is operating within, um, and. So one of the simple ways of saying that is that it's really about asking questions that you don't know the answer to and 
asking questions that are open-ended. Because I think the other thing that happens with diagnostic inquiry, which is, you know, part and parcel of what you do as healthcare professionals, is you ask a lot of um, linear sort of directed and leading questions, oftentimes which have yes and no answers. And that gets you down a diagnostic path that's very helpful, but it may miss things. It may miss a little bit of that extra context. So that's what um, what we're you know trying to get at um, it, with humble inquiry, particularly in the in the um, medical context. But the other thing that Ed was referring to is this mnemonic that that will use to try to kind of help fill out the whole picture, and then and then we can you know we, you can we can take the the conversation in another direction if if. Uh, doctors Cloud and Mason want to, but let, let me just go through this. That's it's we refer to it as the humble inquiry attitude, and the mnemonic is sharing the mic, um, where uh, you know intrinsic as that is the idea that it's it's um, you're alternating in a conversation. It's a seesaw. You're back and forth because you don't want it to be one way in either direction. You want it to be back and forth. And um, so the, the M in Mike is the motivation. And that is that um, you, you have to get to the point where you actually care about what the other person is thinking or experiencing. Um, if you don't really care and you're not really curious, then humble inquiry may not be for you or it may not be necessary in that situation. You're just going to um, live with your ignorance rather than embracing it and trying to move through it. Um, but so it starts with that motivation. You do actually care. And generally, as healthcare professionals, you do care. So I wouldn't worry too much about that one, but recognize that it's important to feel that motivation. Um, the I in Mike is intervention. Um, and the, the point there is that. Um, you recognize that you are consciously intervening in a situation, um, but you're doing it as a way to, to as, as I know Skip likes to say, to draw the other person out rather than telling them what you know. You can always tell people what you know, but you're intervening by asking. Um, you, it's, you are intervening, you're not proclaiming. Um, and it also touches on the idea that part of that intervention is around a, a deep listening, not a casual listening. And again, as, as healthcare professionals and as MDs, you learned that very early on, that deep listening is important. Um, casual listening, this is not cocktail party stuff. This is, this is life and death. So, um, but it, it's, it's an intervention process. Um, so that's the I. And then the last is, uh, is the C, which is contribution. And again, we're, what we're trying to get at with that is that it's not just that you're, you're asking, but you're also contributing in a way that builds empathy. So you're, you're, you're gonna reveal a little bit about yourself in order to establish some trust so that 
again, so that information is shared so that, um, you know, as as healthcare professionals, getting to the questions you ask is very important, but it may be even more important in the care of the, the, the people that you're looking after to get to the questions you don't ask, to the questions you didn't even know to ask. And so part of what we're getting at with the contribution part is that you reveal enough about yourself that you build that trust that people will answer questions you didn't even ask. So um, that's what this, this sort of complex mnemonic, sharing the mic, is all about. And hopefully that kind of fills out this picture of what we mean by humble inquiry. The only other thing that I would say is that in the book, one of the things we try to spend some time doing is differentiating humble inquiry in our sense from other kinds of inquiry. And this has come up a lot in our conversations with you folks over the last eight months or so, is that there are other kinds of inquiry that particularly in healthcare may be critical, but filling out that whole context is where we see humble inquiry being complementary to some of those other forms of inquiry. So the, the book tries to tease out when some are appropriate and when humble inquiry is important. Yeah, and, and that's one thing I wanted to, to say is that the book does do a good job because in most of my interactions with, with patients and, and for that matter with most people, my, uh, my inquiry is more diagnostic. You know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to get to a point and I, I actually come into the conversation and come into the interaction with that person with an outcome that I'm trying to get. Does that, does that make sense? And, mm -hmm. and one of the questions I have for, for you guys is that not, not only in the healthcare profession, but, but as Americans and our culture, why, why is humble inquiry so difficult for us and and i know that there are some personalities people have personalities that are more geared toward it but as a whole our culture isn't just we're, we're not wired for that as opposed to some other other cultures and, and, and could you guys touch on that let me do that one first as that does go back to the original book called helping <clears throat> where i made the point that in our culture, having a problem is not culturally good. You're supposed to be on top of your all your issues, all your problems. The heroic model in the U.S. culture is to be on top of everything, get it done, know how to do it. So if I'm a client asking for help, I put myself one down right off the bat because in a way, culturally, I'm not supposed to have a problem. And the person in the helper role, and let's say a, a direct report comes to one of you and says, boss, I've got a problem. They are making themselves very vulnerable by admitting that. Now, the boss is momentarily empowered and say, wow, uh, I'm, I'm now able to solve this subordinate's problem. And the 
worst trap the boss can fall into is to use that power and say, okay, good, I'll tell you what to do. Because you've asked me, right? You've empowered me to, to give you an answer, so I'm going to give you an answer. That's the culturally correct thing to do. The reason it's hard for us to adopt humble inquiry is because we have to realize that the answer I may be giving <clears throat> will not solve the problem, either because they've already tried it and it doesn't solve the problem, or the subordinate hasn't really told me what the problem really is. He or she has just floated a version of the problem in order to open communication up with the boss. So at that moment, the learning point is don't fall for the question that's asked for of you and give an instant answer unless you're absolutely sure that you've understood the problem and that what you would do would actually solve that problem in the context of what that direct report is asking about. So the nurse says, doctor, I don't understand this, uh, this what you're asking me to do about this patient. And the doctor leaps in and says, okay, I'll tell you all over again. And what the nurse never got out is that the situation on the ward or for this patient has changed in some substantial way and that she understood perfectly the original instructions, but that those instructions are now irrelevant because what the doctor doesn't know is that the patient's situation or health or whatever has changed. So the smart doctor at that point when the nurse says, I, I don't understand these instructions, before leaping in, the doctor says, tell me more, what's the problem? That would be at that moment resisting the cultural impulse to be impatient, tell him or her what to do, and then have things go wrong later and adopt at that moment the humble inquiry attitude before you leap in with your answer and your advice to make sure that what you're going to say actually connects with the problem that's being presented. So culturally, there are two traps. The trap is the, that the, the nurse doesn't ask the right question because she's scared. She doesn't have the psychological safety to say, you know, this patient's condition has changed and it's complicated and I need your attention, doctor so-and-so. And the doctor falls into the trap of not taking a moment to say, uh, what's the problem? See the, the, the cultural pressures there that we have to overcome. The nurse has to be less scared. The doctor has to be less impulsive because the culture says, state your problem, get your answer, and don't admit that you really don't know what you're, 
maybe the cultural problem for the nurse is that he or she is confused about what's happening to this patient. But he or she knows that to say, Doc, I'm confused. I don't know what to do next. Your instructions don't help. It's not okay culturally for a competent nurse to admit that. So he or she isn't going to admit it, and they will both go down a wrong track. So you see that I think happening all the time. So um, I, I want to try to just put it in the this in the context of sort of three common assumptions that we make in the U.S. Um, one is that we need to do things quickly. We've, we have a real need in this country, in fact, and, it, and it's even become sort of deep theory in design thinking to do things quickly, make mistakes quickly, fail fast so that you can correct the errors in a, in a sort of a continuous and high speed process. And in software development, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure it always makes sense in healthcare because people can die. But, you know, you, you guys, you guys know better how fail fast works and doesn't work, but we have to sort of step back and recognize that is kind of how we are wired in North America. We, we're not slow and steady. We're, we're move quickly. So let's just be aware of that. Let's question it. Another one is don't bring me a problem. Bring me a solution. Well, you know, we say that all the time. And that that's, I don't know if that, I guess maybe that comes from our military tradition or wherever, but that's another one to really question because reality is the problem. The solution is, is just something that you believe. You, you need to embrace the problem, not, not sort of get behind somebody's solution because it might be wrong. And, and then the, the other, the other one that, that I always get uneasy about is, um, the well that's above my pay grade that that problem's above my pay grade and i i you know i'm just i'm just in the middle here that that's a that's above my pay grade yeah but that means you're not going to share what you know and if you're not if to ed ed mentioned psychological safety if you're not if you don't feel comfortable sharing what you know because you you think well that's above my pay grade i don't get paid the big bucks to make those decisions then you're not going to share what you know, and so um, I think we have to just remind ourselves those those little sort of cultural post holes aren't particularly helpful, and um, you know they they you know the the part of the U.S. tradition about you know I mean think of all of the medical innovations that have come out of the U.S. where we were out there you know trying stuff, and um, you know created amazing things, but there, there are some downsides and to, to this, you know, we're, we're highly creative and highly innovative, but there are times when we need to slow down. We need to feel safe to share problems. Uh, and we, we need to believe at some level that we figure things out collectively, not because of, of individual initiative only. So, you know, there are many things that we could probably go into about um you know adaptations the u.s culture has to make but for 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 us in in writing books like humble inquiry those are some of the ones that 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 we want people to think about 
Yes, and Peter, I know we we touched on this in previous conversations, but uh, I want uh, to get you all's um, thinking about. Uh, let's say we're part of a larger healthcare organization. Let's say a hospital, and and there's an event that happens uh, that's a that's a less than ideal outcome for a patient, and and we analyze that event, and we come to the conclusion that. Yeah, it's just a reflection of our culture. Uh, this happened because of our culture. And uh, what I, what I want to get from you all is, um, is first uh, an observation about that statement. What does that mean? And then secondly, if we do um, decide that uh, it's due to our culture, uh, can it be changed and how? Ed, do you want to take a first swing at that? Well, <clears throat> the the culture is a is a dynamic thing, and it the culture in the U.S. I think of it as a very conflicted culture, because even as we have the idea, and you hear me on on video now, by the way. I think I'm finally on video. No. Uh, the culture is conflicted because we also believe that being being helpful is important. And we know that just telling people what to do is often not helpful. So the, the trick is whether people in occupations like yours, where helping is intrinsic to the role, to the occupation, whether you have to kind of mentally dismiss the part of the culture that's the frontier, that is the achievement, that is the entrepreneurship, that is the the hero, and say, but I'm not in that business. I'm in the business of being a helper. I'm a doctor. So for me, being the hero in the sense of telling people what to do is probably not the right part of the culture to be using. Is is sort of the way I come at this. The culture has many elements and we have to learn how to use those elements that apply to our own occupations. If, if I'm in a startup role and I'm creating the company, it may be perfectly appropriate for me to tell everybody everything that I'm, I'm creating this, so I get to tell. But if you're the doctor doing a complex operation, you realize that what the anesthetist does, what the charge nurse does, what the tech does, they all matter. And there are times when the operation is so routine that you can tell them each what to do. But if it's a complex operation, you might realize, hey, I'm dependent on these people doing their thing. And I don't know exactly what that anesthetist should be doing moment by moment. I hope to God that person is is with me and that I can trust them 
to vary the, the depth depending on what part of the brain I'm working on or whatever it is that's complicated. The, the that culture of tell and be on top of everything in a way has to be consciously dismissed once you're in a helper role is how I come at this. Uh, and so, Adam, I'll, I'll just sort of pull up a little bit and say that um, it is common to, to say, sorry, now we're, okay. Can you hear it's, me? Yep. All right. It, it finally happened. There's Ed. He exists. <laughs> I kept fooling around and I must have somehow found the right path. <laughs> Hi there. The software so, metaphor right there. You um, did hear me say that you have to suspend that part of the culture in your own mind if you're in a consciously helping role. Right. But right. I, but I, what I was going to do too is to say that um, the idea that we can sort of blame culture is, uh, I mean, it's correct and then it's fundamentally incorrect because it does, it's not really saying anything. We have to start breaking down what we mean. And so in, in Ed's and my culture books, um, if nothing else, it's giving, the, the idea is to have some vocabulary to start talking about what is it specifically that we're talking about being the issue. So is it um, what we would say is, is, is there an issue in the technical culture, which is sort of our strategy and how we've designed our business or our, our hospital around that strategy? Or is it our social culture? Is it is it something in the way that um, our people up and down the value chain are relating to each other? Um, that we're very antagonistic or we're very passive or we're passive aggressive. There, there are patterns that we need to start teasing out. So rather than treating culture as this big amorphous thing that we know we need to change, what is it specifically that we can start identifying? Um, and so, and, and it, what's the vocabulary that we can embrace to start breaking down the problem because culture is always too big a problem um, to attack directly, but it's also um, ubiquitous. Um, and, you know, you know, and the, the two points that I would immediately identify it's the cultural norm about doing things fast, which Peter pointed out and the cultural norm about being careful talking up not feeling safe those are both mm -hmm. cultural norms that probably cover 80 percent of your bad conversations you didn't have enough time and people were scared to say what was on their mind so um and dr cloud i want to just go back to that quote um, because the, the, what I think you were getting at is the Clifford Geertz, who is sort of the, um, who is a contemporary of Ed's at the Harvard School of Social Relations, um, was, is sort of the father of interpretive, or the, the godfather of interpretive anthropology, and, um, or interpretive cultural analysis. And, 
And his comment was, the trick is to figure out what the devil they think they're up to. Mm-hmm. And they think is the critical point there. You know, yes, it's tricky. Um, you know, anytime the, the the devil is introduced into something like that, you know that it's <laughs> devilishly complicated. But what they think is what matters. So the question that Ed was bringing up about, you know, the maybe the the surgeon and the anesthesiologist, those are two dramatically different occupational cultures. Do they each know what they think they're up to? And how much better might they be in delivering the right level of care if they had a better sense of what they think they're up to? Um, that's the, the point about getting doctor, the nurse doctor relationship might be the the best one to focus on. Do we have a good sense of what that nurse's thought process is if we're the doctor and vice versa? And then, you know, within those occupational bodies, do they understand their technical culture and their social culture in a way that they could help the surgeon understand that? And then similarly, the surgeons, do they have a sense of the technical culture that dominates their occupation and the the social norms or the social culture um, of how they relate to each other? Because if either of those occupations have a good sense of those things, their ability to, to start sort of connecting the dots is gonna be that much greater. But again, it starts with how can we break this down in a way that 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 we can actually start being specific about identifying where the problems are. So that I'm, I'm glad you took us there, Peter, because uh, my next question was going to be, what can we learn from anthropology and how we approach uh, the culture of an organization? Well, um, I think what the anthropologist does is not very mysterious. They develop first an attitude of I want to find out how they think. I want to sort of get into the essence of their culture. Now, how do I do that? Well, I have to probably observe them and then ask them some questions about the things that they do that I don't understand. So the the example I was going to give was where in this cancer setup, the nurses thought that it would really be good to brief a patient the night before they entered chemotherapy at the hospital to get their anxiety reduced and so on and so on. And they cleared this all with the patients and with the cancer center. And on the day they started the experiment, the, the nurse went over to patient records and said, I I need this patient's record so I could go deal with them tonight. And patient record said, no, you can't have, why not? Well, because we're in the middle of installing Epic or something, uh, transferring all the information and that patient's record is not available, sorry. And they were adamant about it. You know, we have a job to do here that's bigger than, than your you're talking to some patient tonight. 
And that was a project that died after a year and a half of planning because they hadn't figured out who all might be involved and what their culture and their demands are. And so they had, had not gotten patient records on board and this beautiful improvement process went down the tubes. So the anthropologist has to also know whom to observe. So if you're an anthropologist in a hospital, you've got a big job. You've got to look at all, you've got to look at the pharmacy and how they operate. You've got to look at housekeeping, the hotel part of the job. And then you look at the professional specialties and then you discover that, that the, the neurosurgeons and the cardiac surgeons and the general surgeons are three different tribes with different cultures. So if you really want to be the anthropologist, you better spend some time with each of them and ask them some questions as to why they do what they do. And I think the improvement projects often fail because they are not inquiring enough of all the units that have their own cultures that are either going to help or get in the way of, of what the improvement project wants to accomplish. That, that's a kind of a long-winded answer, but it's not a technical answer. It's a behavioral answer. The anthropologist hangs around, observes, asks a lot of questions, and tries to make sense of what's going on. And in one of my lectures a few years ago, I said explicitly that all leaders have to become part anthropologists, and the other part was part midwives, because <laughs> leaders also have to bring these new things uh, into being, but they don't have control of the whole pregnancy birth process. The the midwife analogy for leadership is not a bad, not a bad analogy. <laughs> and I wanted to just uh, add also the idea of the um, if if I know in the Baptist management system, I don't know if you call it Gemba. But you know that idea of of going on to Gemba to sort of um, to to kind of figure out some you know some answers to what's going on, but the the interpretive sort of ethnographic approach would be to go in with sort of a completely open and wide lens, and I think the trap that sometimes we may get into is that we use Gemba to uh, answer or to to provide metrics um, for two or three very specific things. And so the balance is, yes, you're trying to establish some 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 benchmarks or you're trying trying to see where how you're doing relative to a specific set of metrics. Um, but the Gemba also has to have that wide lens. The the ethnographer who shows up and has no idea what to look for, can Gemba also provide that? I'm going to have that wide lens, 
that's way outside of the bounds of my A3. Um, and so, so it's kind of both. It's you've, you've got to find out some, some answers to some specific, you know, kind of angles of inquiry, but you also have to generally inquire what's going on. Um, and maybe in a way that's the hardest lesson from anthropology because anthropology is, I think when it's most successful goes in completely unstructured, but that's very hard for doctors and nurses and techs <laughs> to be completely unstructured in how they are observing or thinking. But a lot of times the what's really going on comes out of that being open to, to unstructured observation. So I'd like to give a quick example of that. Uh, the, the hospital that Peter and I were observing uh, invited uh, me to observe huddles because huddles were their answer how they're taking the social culture into account. That we've got all these huddles and the people really trust each other, blah, blah, blah. On paper, they really were well connected and well related. The huddle I observed was nothing like this. People were coming in and out. Several people were missing who were, they were trying to discharge a patient. And they discovered that several people who had the key information about whether this patient was ready to be discharged or not had to be gotten on to by phone. Uh, the huddle was from a group team point of view, a total mess. So the claim that we've solved the social connection problem by having huddles would have to be observed before you would accept that as yes, they've really become teams. No, they didn't look anything like teams. They were just physically part of a group that claimed to be doing what group, what good teams are supposed to be doing. One of the ways that we've been describing this kind of observation is that that kind of huddle might be oriented around handoffs. But in some respects, what they were trying to orient around was hand in hand. And so, you know, too many handoffs and not enough hand in hand ends up with, you know, things getting lost, stuff dropping off the table. You know, Peter, can you talk about what hand in hand means? Well, what um, th this this term sort of came up for us because we were describing the very important idea of embracing simultaneous interdependence. And honestly, wh where it came up was we were um, as as Americans um, frustrated by the fact that the uh, U.S. men's 4x100 relay team came in sixth <laughs> place in their qualifying heat yes. behind, you know, no offense, but behind Ghana. What's Ghana like a thousand times smaller than the U.S.? <laughs> and yet their team beat ours. Well, why? Because I'm willing to bet Ghana knew that they didn't have four runners as fast as our four runners. So what did they do? They embraced their simultaneous interdependence. 
So you can be pretty sure that those handoffs were very efficient, um, were very effective. Um, but the U.S. No, no, no. We've got we've got the four fastest individuals. Um, we'll just make up for it with that speed. Um, well, didn't work out that way because the 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 performance of the team way under way underperformed the sum of its parts. Right. Simultaneous okay. independent. If you really embrace that and you 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 focus on it and you you um, you work on it. Then you get synergy, right? Where the sum is greater than the four parts. Um, well, let's use the Peter. Let me bring in the anthropologist watching this. The anthropologist would see two runners working at different speed within a limited space using mobile parts of the body with with hands and to me the hand in hand is literally the baton pass is a incredibly complicated thing when both pe people are running and trying to run efficiently and as fast as possible you know why would we think that is by any stretch of the imagination a simple act of handoff it's an incredibly complicated act of hand in hand, literally. And one of the things that really struck us, what? One of the things that really struck us about that case is that the handoff ended up depressing the performance of the people following that handoff. Because when you see something go poorly like that, it just takes the wind out of your sails. So that the, the anchor leg for the US team way underperformed his potential. Because, you know, I mean, I don't know if this is what actually happened, but it seemed like it's just like, oh crap, now we can't win because these teams that have done well with their, their simultaneous interdependence have a leg up on us, as it were. You know, I think that's probably where that expression came from. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I, I just uh, I think so. So that's what we're trying to get at when we say if you're thinking of of a, a sequence of linear handoffs, where do they really have to be hand in hand connections? Um, where handoffs work, but there are places where hand in hand might work better. So. Yeah. Well, Peter and Ed. Uh, Boy, this has been some really, really stimulating conversation, and and I know that uh, that all the listeners have enjoyed it. And 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 Peter, you mentioned the Baptist management system, and and just for all the people out there, uh, we do have a YouTube channel that's called the Baptist Management System, and and uh, Skip. It, there are a lot of great videos on on JI, JR, TWI, CADA, everything that, that we talk about in the Baptist management system. But also there's four excellent uh, interviews that Skip has done with, uh, with uh, Dr. Shine and, and, and Peter. So uh, I, I encourage everybody out there to, uh, to check those videos out. Um, Skip, I'll, we'll turn it over to you. Yeah, let, first of all, I just wanna thank uh, Two individuals that have become good friends as well as coaches, you know, Dr. Shine and Peter. And 
And I want to kind of end it uh, with asking a question that I think it's important. You know, we talk a lot about TWI job relations. We talk a lot in the world of improvement and lean about respect every individual. And those things are important. They're very important. I think one of the things that's a mistake, though, sometimes is that we frame relationships in a binary situation. Good relationship, bad relationship. And uh, I'm not so sure that that's helpful. And one of the works that uh, Dr. Shine and Peter have done for quite some time that I think is a huge contribution is framing relationships on a continuum of four different levels. And, um, and level one, I would say, is where almost all of healthcare is. Uh, in the small amount of time that we have left, uh, Ed and Peter, can y'all briefly review the four types of relationships and why we might want to strive for a specific one of those types? I'll take a first cut at it because I've learned how to do this very rapidly. The four levels are uh, something that every society has some version of it. Level minus one is domination. You use your power to dominate the other person. It is a relationship, but it's a bad one that we generally don't like. Level one is the traditional transaction of which we have a zillion every day. Doctor, patient, nurse, doctor, those are all transactions based upon roles. Level three, I'm deliberately skipping to for the moment. Level three is emotionally intimate. What we are with our family, with our close friends, with our lovers. Level two is this tricky one called personizing, where we want to get to know the person better than the transactions allow. So that we need, we have that in friendships of various sorts. We know how to do that. And the argument is that we need to have more of what is traditionally transactional, just role to role, doctor to nurse, doctor to doctor. We need to have that evolve into level two, knowing the other person well enough to be able to be open and trusting with them. So in all of medicine, there will be lots of transactional relationships that should be moving toward level two personal relationships in order to be more open and in order to elicit the trust that's needed to get a complex job done together. So ignore minus one and three and concentrate on whether you can get from one to two on selected relationships where openness and trust really matters. And um, Ed maybe intentionally uh, avoided the issue of are we talking about relationships uh, within the system or are we talking about relationships with all of the people that that you care for? <laughs> um, so do you can you establish a level two relationship with your patients um, uh, and, you know, Probably a lot of you doctors out there have thousands of patients. Um, and I guess our argument would be, 
Uh, yes, but a lot of the point in our introducing these concepts is so that as a system, you recognize um, as, you know, uh, doctor to tech or, or you know, uh, surging, surgeon to, to um, uh, another physician in the OR or to a, you know, a, a head nurse in the OR. Are, are you recognizing ways that you can bring those relationships to be more than level one, to be level two, where there's a substrate of openness and trust so that you're going to, you're going to share when things aren't going right, or you're going to, you're going to appreciate each other when things are going right in a way that's genuine and open and trusting. So, um, our real intent in talking about this was so that organizations operate or, or perform more effectively. Um, but I do think it's particularly tricky in your business because the same idea of this, this taxonomy of relationships also applies to all of the patient care settings as well. Um, but at least for the purposes of the Baptist, you know, management system, where are places where you can move from level one to level two, because it increases information sharing. That's the, that's the basic point. Well, well Peter, as uh, you know, last night, my beloved St. Louis Cardinals got beat in the last inning with the last hit. And so as I'm mourning that, I'm gonna use a cliche of, I'm gonna tee up one more question. You know, um, uh, the, uh, as we move from level one to level two, let me back up and say, you know, a phrase that y'all shared with me is that, you know, life is a series of um, conversations and relationships and everything happens through a conversation and relationship. And as we move from a level one transactional, polite, professionally distant relationship towards a level two, an open and trustful relationship, what many times happens is that to use Baptist management system language, we understand our current condition so much better because we are getting answers to questions that we don't even know to ask. Anything that you would comment on that, Peter or Ed? Well, I give a very simple example of when a CEO wanted to, to meet me to see whether I would be an acceptable consultant in his company. And so I was a young professor. I was coming to his office. He had a great big office with wood paneling and a bunch of canoe paddles uh, on the wall. And for some reason, as I walked in and nodded my head and said hello, I found myself saying, what, what's, what are all these canoe paddles about? Which launched him into a personal story of how he likes to take vacations in the, uh, in the Canadian woods. And he then dominated the meeting for the next half hour talking about himself and at the end said, come to our key meeting starting next Friday. Didn't ask me anything. He took me for granted on the basis that I was interested in his canoes. <laughs> it's, yeah. It can be as simple as that. He knew from that that I was okay. 
If I was interested in this canoe, I must be okay. Yeah, I mean, we we run the, always run the risk of of you know this jargon of level one and level two, but I guess you know what what we are trying to say is that we do know how to do this, right? Because we did it in school, we we did it in college, we you know we do it on our you know our softball leagues or whatever. We know how to do this. It's just did we allow ourselves to do this at work? And our argument is work's gotten too complicated to not allow yourself to do this at work. Yeah. Um, that person, we, you know, it, it, we, we, we you, you, in one of the books we referred to personalizing. And then at one point we were writing it out and we forgot to AL. And so accidentally created this term personalizing. And then we said, oh, yeah, maybe we ought to keep that because, <laughs> because it's different. It's different than personalizing. Personalizing sort of is like customizing. Personizing is where we're trying to remind ourselves to try to get a whole person to whole person connection. Know a little bit more about that person that you need to, that you're interdependent with. Because, you know, you know you'll, you'll know when they're not having a good day or they'll know when you're not having a good day. You don't have to hide that stuff. It's it's not helpful. You know, they, they need to know. You need yeah. to know. Um, because again, you know, we don't have much time. You know, we, we, we've got a very complicated workflow. Um, you know, that, that, you know, level of knowledge about how the other person's doing and who they are is, is gonna help. Now, the other problem that often comes up is that, well, how can I possibly scale that? I, you know, I interact with a hundred people every day. How can I, you know, well, I mean, in some cases it's going to be hard, but um, the net benefit of creating those person to person relationships, we, we just think is it's positive. I think I've become obsessed with the idea that the invitation to level two can always start with something very simple. So if I'm the anthropologist and I meet Peter even virtually for the first time. I can look around what's behind him and say, what are those two photographs behind you about? That forces him to be personal. And if he doesn't really want to be personal, he can be very curt and let me know that he doesn't care to talk about it. But if he if he tells me that that's Big Sur and that's where he lives, we've started. All it takes is a a personalized question about something that that invites, doesn't force, but it invites a more personal conversation. And I find myself using background all the time in this virtual thing, but the same thing can be done with asking a question about what you're wearing or you know where have you just come from you seem to be in a hurry are there any number of their very simple invitations well and i happen to know that dr mason knows a song from his childhood about pawpaws because we did that very same thing in in one of our early meetings dr mason asked me what and you know, I grew up in the Northeast, and I live in California. I don't know what a pawpaw is, 
but I've always liked that piece of art. So. <laughs> hey, and I did a little research that Munyon's pawpaw, that was, uh, Munyon was this kind of quack doctor around the turn of the century, and he sold this elixir that was uh, made from uh, fermented fermented papayas. But but yes, there is a song down here in the South that we sing, where oh, where oh, where is Susie? Way down yonder in the pawpaw patch. There. <laughs> never, never really knew what a pawpaw was. So. Uh -huh. Well, on, on that note, I'm going to bring us to a close. And, and, and just on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, on behalf of just uh, two individuals that have become dear, dear friends, thank you so much, Ed. And thank you so much, Peter, for spending time today with us on our annual summit. Uh, and I'm going to kind of close us out at this point. Uh, I'll close out the summit. Uh, if there's anyone that has any final questions, please put them in the chat box. Uh, but just Hello and welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. Today's episode is featuring an excerpt from the 6th Annual Baptist TWI Summit in October of 2021. 
Um, what you're going to hear is Dr. William Cloud and Dr. H.F. Mason um, interviewing Dr. Edgar Schein and his son Peter Schein on the second edition of their book, Humble Inquiry.